Oswald Chambers said, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. When we think about fear, probably we think about a lot of different things, even in this room, because what we fear the most really is different for everybody. For some people, fear is standing on top of a tall building and looking all the way down, right? For those of you who have a fear of heights, you're thinking about that right now. For some, it's needles when you're at the doctor's office, which always seem bigger and longer than they actually are, right? At least for those who are frightened by them. Some people fear loss, losing everything they've worked for, uh, losing their financial stability. And then, of course, there are the old standbys, snakes and spiders and all the, the creepy crawly things. Some people are afraid of small enclosed spaces. Some people are afraid of the dark. Uh, some afraid of flying on airplanes. Some are afraid of creepy clowns at night. Um, if you're like me, when you think about fear, the first thing you think of is anything that has to do with math. <laughs> I still have nightmares about college algebra, which, by the way, I haven't used once in my life, I would like to say. I, under, <laughs> I understand the concept of broadening people's horizons, but if you go all the way through grammar school and middle school and high school and you still hate math, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be on your horizon anytime soon. So uh, I don't know why I had to take it. But look, my point is this. There are a lot of different things that we think of when we think about fear. And yet one of the things that most of us probably do not chiefly think about when we think about fear is God. The Bible says God is love, right? That he's our refuge. He's our strength. He's our peace. He's our dwelling place. He is light and life and salvation, right? For those who know him, we know that we're saved by grace, a grace that we do not deserve and cannot earn. And so it seems unnatural to associate that same God with fear. And yet Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus himself said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. The fact is, the Bible talks about fearing God well over a hundred times. And of course, when we talk about the fear of God in church, we usually talk about things like reverence and respect, which isn't wrong. But the truth is, when the fear of God is talked about in Scripture, there are different words in the ancient languages that are used in different places to describe that fear. And even the same words in different places can carry different meanings. The truth is, the the biblical languages are far more nuanced than our modern English. So yes, when the Bible teaches us to fear God, it is referring to a profound awe and reverence and respect but look, in a very real and very visceral way, at times it is also referring to people being utterly terrified, dreadfully afraid. And the, the difference between those two types of fear of God for us lies in the kind of relationship that we have with Him. And we talked about this back in our Revelation series uh, just a few months ago, but it bears repeating because Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's addressing Christians, first, first of all, where he talks about acceptable worship, which means there's unacceptable worship, by the way. That's another sermon for another day. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He's addressing Christians. We are to worship him with reverence and awe. By the way, both those words, uh, reverence and awe, in the original ancient Greek, 
can also be translated as fear. And so we as believers are to worship him with reverence and awe because he is a consuming fire, which makes complete sense if you think about it. Uh, just consider how we approach fire, right? We certainly, we certainly fear what fire is capable of if we don't maintain a proper relationship to it. So experience negatively, fire can hurt, right? It can burn, it can destroy, it can take away life. I mean, for some, fire is terrible, Experience positively, fire keeps us warm. It cooks our food. It fuels our transportation. It lights our birthday cakes, some more than others, right? Uh, Fire makes s'mores possible. Come on. Fire makes camping fun. It sustains life. Fire's wonderful. You see, fire can be terrible, and fire can be wonderful, depending upon your relationship to it. So what does a healthy fear of fire look like? It looks like dread for what it can do when our relationship to it is negative, and yet at the same time, it looks like reverence and awe and wonder and appreciation for and dependence upon it when our relationship to it is positive, right? If your relationship to God is adversarial, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian, then when you encounter Him outside of repentance, you would be right to be dreadfully afraid, However, if your relationship to God is based on His redeeming love and grace through your faith in Him, then we may well still be dreadfully afraid when we encounter Him, depending upon the encounter. Listen, when the Apostle John, who is Jesus' favorite, encountered the Christ in His glorified state, John wrote that He fell at His feet as though dead. In other words, astounded and terrified by the overwhelming reality of being in the very presence of Jesus Christ in all of His power and glory, even though He was the closest one to Jesus. John blacks out. He passes out on the ground before the Christ. And yet, because John was a follower of Christ, because He loved Jesus, He says that Jesus laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I'm the first and the last, Revelation 1.17. So even though John experienced the same dread and terror before the Lord that so many people who don't know him have, Jesus says, John, it's okay. You don't have to fear me that way because you're one of mine. You belong to me. It's great news for all of us who follow Christ. However, that in no way, shape, or form excuses or exempts us from the other kind of fear described in the Bible, the kind where we're so astounded by him, so awestruck just to be in his presence, so reverent before him that he becomes the focus of all of our attention. He becomes the source of all of our joy. He's at the center of every decision. He's the purpose behind all that we do. He's the motivation that gets us up in the morning and the drive that keeps us going throughout each day. He's the sum total of everything that we long for in life. In short, we become utterly consumed by him. That's what it means for the follower of Christ to fear God. We revere him so much that everything else in our lives pales in his presence. You see, for most of us, our problem today is not that we don't love God enough. Our problem is that we don't fear God enough. Because if we were truly seized by an awestruck wonder every time we encountered Jesus Christ, number one, we wouldn't fear anything else. And number two, we would love him more than everything else. Honestly, we should be asking ourselves, do we really fear God today? 
Are we consumed by him as Peter was, who did not consider himself worthy to die as Jesus had? And so according to the early church fathers, upon his own crucifixion, Peter announced, it's time for you, Peter, to surrender your body to those who are taking it. Take it then, you whose duty it is. I request you, therefore, executioners, to crucify me head downwards in this way and no other. And then while hanging on that cross, upside down, Peter gave a final speech. And then he died. Do we really fear God? Are we as consumed by Christ like Ignatius of Antioch was the first century church father who was taken to the Colosseum where Christians were strapped to hot iron chairs and made to run between gauntlets of wild animals who would tear at the person until they were brought down by those animals and eaten alive? I've shared this with you before. Knowing this was his fate, Ignatius wrote these final words. He said, it is not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but actually to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one, then I can have the name. What a thrill I shall have from the wild beasts that are ready for me. I hope they'll make short work of me. I shall coax them on to eat me up at once and not to hold off as sometimes happens through fear. And if they're reluctant, I shall force them to it. Forgive me. I know what is good for me. Now is the moment I'm beginning to be a disciple. May nothing seen or unseen begrudge me making my way to Jesus Christ. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil. Only let me get to Jesus Christ. Do we really fear God? Do we revere him the way Queen Esther did, who knowing she would probably die for approaching the king without being summoned first, but decided to anyway, in order to save God's people, she simply said, if I perish, I perish. Do we really fear God? These were men and women who had such a reverent and awestruck, healthy fear of God that they feared nothing else. Do we fear God like that? Do we get up every single day thinking, if today is my last, may every breath that remains within me bring glory to his name. Only let me get to Jesus. Do we really fear God? Are we awestruck in his presence? Are we intimidated by this world? Do we really fear God? Are we willing to give everything to him or are we holding on to everything that we can? Do we really fear God? Are we so captivated by him that no temptation in this world could even begin to captivate us? Do we really fear God? That's what our story is addressing today. What happens in our lives when we truly learn to fear God in a way that actually changes us. And so we're continuing our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua. And look, typically in these stories each week, God is teaching us through Joshua and or his people. And yet from time to time, just as it was with Rahab back in chapter 2, from time to time we learn some paradigm-shattering life lessons from the other characters in the story. And that's the case today, as we'll see. So let's turn there together where we left off last week at Joshua chapter 9. We'll begin by reading verses 1 and 2. So Joshua 9, 1 and 2. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So the word is out in Canaan about all that God has done 
for his people. He miraculously held back the waters of the Jordan so that all two and a half million Jews could cross over safely into the land of Canaan. Then he miraculously gave Jericho into their hands, which the Israelites completely uh, destroyed according to God's command. You'll remember all that if you were here. Then they did the same to Ai, the city of Ai, and Bethel, most likely. And so these other kings, knowing that this is probably just the beginning for the Israelites, they gather together and form one massive fighting force to try and defeat the Israelites before they can do any more damage to the other cities of Canaan, which brings to light quite clearly the disposition of these other kings and their people toward the Israelites and their God. Okay, these pagan kings obviously no longer feared the God of the Israelites, not, not the way they did just in recent history. They, they did at one time. Back in chapter 5, right after the crossing of the Jordan, Joshua says that the people's hearts were melting for fear of what the Lord had done for his people, all the people of Canaan. But now that's changed because of one man's sin. You remember Akan's disobedience to God's command and the ensuing loss at Ai on their first attempt. So the Israelites are now considered beatable. They can be defeated as far as the Canaanites are concerned. So they no longer fear the God of the Israelites the way they once had. If they had they would have also understood that gathering to fight God's people now was nothing more than a death wish, just as the first five verses of Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. You think God's wringing his hands right now over what's happening in Israel? God is in control, okay? If the Canaanites then believed there was absolutely no chance of winning, they wouldn't bother fighting. They would give up and leave or ask for terms of surrender or do what Rahab and the Gibeonites did and become a part of Israel, as we'll see in our story today. But the one thing they certainly would not do if they feared the Israelites' God is to try and defeat his chosen people. So they had a fear of losing their cities, yes, but not a fear of the God who had already given those cities to his own people. In other words, they had fear. It was just fear in the wrong things. Listen to me. That's just as common today for God's people as it was then. Fear, we have fear, but often in the wrong things. Okay, having no fear of God breeds in us fear of everything else. Because everyone has fears, we all do. We all submit those fears to something, but when we have a healthy fear of God, Jesus said we don't have to fear anything else. Let's keep reading verses 3 through 15. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We've come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country of your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. 
For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our homes as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, they've burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from our very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Talking about the Israelites. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Okay, Gibeon, uh, it's the modern-day village of El Jib. It's six miles northwest of Jerusalem, and from it came the Hivites, or Gibeonites, a people group that originally migrated from Canaan, from, uh, uh, to Canaan, from Anatolia. It's modern-day Turkey, many centuries before the Israelites ever arrived in Canaan. So their cultural identity was very different from that uh, of the Israelites. And, of course, when God commanded his people to dispossess the current residents of Canaan of their land in Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2, the Hivites were included in that command because, according to Deuteronomy 7, 4, God knew that the Israelites allowed other people groups, if they allowed other people groups to remain, I'm quoting, he said, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So the people of God knew they had a mandate to spare no one in Canaan on their conquest because all of the current residents were considered Karim in the ancient Hebrew. We've covered that extensively the last two weeks, that the things devoted to utter destruction. But not only did the Israelites know that, apparently the Gibeonites knew it as well because they pull off one of the most elaborate hoaxes in all of the Bible. Okay, we learn from the beginning of the next chapter that Gibeon was no ordinary city. Joshua says Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. It was greater than I, and all its men were warriors. And so the mighty men of valor from the royal Hivite city, the great and powerful city of Gibeon, go down to the local landfill and get the most worn out, beat up, good-for-nothing, discarded items of clothing and sandals and supplies they can find. And then they scrape up old expired food from the dumpster behind the local grocery store, food that isn't worth eating. So when they come limping into Joshua's camp at Gilgal, it will look as if they've been traveling for a very, very long time over a great distance through much hardship, when actually they just strolled in from Gibeon. By the way, Gibeon's 3,300 feet higher in elevation than Joshua's camp. It's downhill all the way. So they take a leisurely stroll, it's 19 miles downhill the entire way into Gilgal. It's less than a day's walk. And they convince Joshua and the leaders of Israel to make a covenant with them, which Israel was permitted to do, by the way, with anyone from outside of Canaan under the law in Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 18. And of course, verse 14 explains why the leaders of Israel were so easily fooled by these Gibeonites. Because, I'm quoting, they did not ask counsel from the Lord, which seems especially confounding given the fact that they just went through this at Ai. We just talked about this where they were attacked. Uh, they attacked the city of Ai without seeking counsel from God first, and as a result, they were soundly beaten. And yet here they are again, relying on their own wits apart from the counsel of the Lord, and they end up getting duped into making a covenant with their next door neighbors. Verse 15 says, to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. 
Because in ancient Israel, unlike today, covenants or treaties were made only with the utmost seriousness, this covenant was fully binding, even though it was achieved by the Gibeonites through deception. When you gave people your word, it meant something. And so not a wise move on the part of the Israelites at all, but incredibly wise on the part of the Gibeonites. In fact, in verse 4, when Joshua says that the Gibeonites on their part acted with cunning, the word cunning there in the ancient Hebrew is, is the word orma. It means wisdom. It's the same word used in Proverbs 15.5 and 19.25 that describe orma as a positive quality. The point being, Joshua recognized and in fact even admired the wisdom of the Gibeonites, or he probably wouldn't have used that particular word to describe these people who he was meant to destroy. And why were the Gibeonites so wise anyway? Verse 9 tells us, They said to Joshua, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. That part was true. See, the one true statement they made in this whole ruse reveals their true posture toward the God of the Israelites. They feared him more than they feared anything else. Unlike the other kings of Canaan, who were amassing their armies to fight against God's chosen because they did not fear God. And unlike the Israelites themselves, at least in this instance, who failed to do the most basic thing, they failed to seek the counsel of the Lord. They were being foolish because they didn't fear God like they should. So they made a binding covenant with foreigners with implications for many generations to come, as we're going to see. And so believe it or not, the Gibeonites of all the people in this story feared the God of Israel more than the rest of them. And as a result, they were the only ones who exercised great wisdom in this life or death situation, which actually shouldn't surprise us because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. King Solomon, one of the wisest human beings to ever live, a man who knew more about wisdom than anyone else in his day, wrote, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 9.10 You see, when you fear God to the point that you give Him deference in, in every area of your life, you start making decisions based on what He can do rather than on what you can do which is precisely what the Gibeonites are doing here. They made a decision based solely on what they knew God could do because they had a healthy fear of Him. On the flip side, when we make big decisions based solely on what we can do, we take God out of the equation, which is what the Israelites and the pagan kings were doing. They removed God from their decisions. I mean, how many of us, when we make decisions today, do we, we try and figure out, what can I do here? What am I able to accomplish? What's within the scope of reality for me to get done in this situation without any consideration of what God wants to do and certainly can do? Right? Every time the Israelites made decisions apart from God, the results in every case were incredibly foolish decisions that cost them dearly. When you have a healthy fear an irrepressible reverence and awe for God, you include Him in every decision, which results in wise decisions. But when you don't fear God at all, or very little, then you don't seek God, which means you exclude Him from the decisions that we all have to make. And of course, some of those decisions affect you and the people of you love, the people you love for generations to come. I can't tell you how many people who've made big decisions and caused themselves and their families tremendous heartache, who've come and talked to me about it later and said, you know, I realize now, Pastor, I didn't really seek the, uh, God in that decision. Not like I should have. I mean, the pathway forward seems so obvious to me. I thought I already knew what was best. 
I didn't really take the time with God that I should have, okay? The fear of God that we're supposed to have is such a profound respect and reverence and admiration for him that we seek him first in everything. And that's when you begin making decisions in your life based on what God can do instead of what you can do, right? Every time Joshua and the Israelites tried to do something big based on their own wisdom and what they could accomplish on their own, even when the outcome seemed obvious, they failed every single time. And yet every time they did something based on God's wisdom and what he could do, he showed up in big ways beyond their imagination. And as a result, they experienced success every single time. Look, if you're tired of constantly wondering what you should do, if you want to consistently make the best decisions for your life and for those you love, then you have to get to a place in your relationship with Christ where there's such an all-consuming sense of awe and wonder and reverence and respect for him that you never make any of those big decisions in your life without seeking him first and relying then on what he can do instead of trying to rely on your own wisdom and what you can do. It's what the Gibeonites did, believe it or not. And I don't think Joshua would have written about it in this story the way that he did if he hadn't learned a great lesson about wisdom from the very people he was meant to destroy. And it's a lesson for all of us today. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That is a very practical truth for your life. Let's keep reading verses 16 through 21. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and that they had lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. So the cat's out of the bag. The Israelites find out that they've been tricked, and so they go up to the Gibeonites, whose city was made up of at least four towns, all of which are mentioned in the Benjaminite tribal allotments later in this book, which were clustered together, again, uh, northwest of Jerusalem, about 19 miles from Gilgal. And so the Israelites go up there to confirm that the rumors are true, and of course they are. The Gibeonites are their neighbors, so immediately the people of Israel want blood. They're furious. Remember, God's command to the people was clear that they were to devote destruction to destruction all of the Canaanites. And so this decision to live in covenant relationship with the Canaanites was unthinkable for the Israelites. But it was also irreversible, like an arrow shot from a bow. What they had done could not be taken back. And so the leaders of the Israelites will not allow the people to avenge the deception that has been leveled upon them. In fact, as we'll see in verse 26, it says Joshua delivered them, talking about the Gibeonites, out of the hand of the people of Israel. So this wasn't just a matter of the Israelites complaining or grumbling. No, they're out for blood, but Joshua stops them in order to honor the covenant as ill-advised as the covenant was. Uh, So as the Israelites will now have to live with the consequences of their actions, so too will the Gibeonites, more specifically 
even though Canaan was full of uh, polytheistic cults, because the Gibeonites chose to fear the God of the Israelites alone, they will now live and not die because the fear of the Lord leads to life. Again, we learn from King Solomon, who wrote, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied, he will not be visited by harm. Proverbs 19.23. Listen, if this, if this verse in Proverbs describes anyone, it describes the Gibeonites, as we'll see next week, because not only do the Israelites not kill them for their deception, but they won't allow anyone else to harm the Gibeonites either. And so because the Gibeonites feared God, they not only get to keep their lives, but they're able to rest satisfied without being harmed, okay? Fearing God, honoring and revering and respecting Him does not ensure a trouble-free life, as you well know, but it does ensure us a life that overcomes that trouble. Jesus said in the world, you will have tribulation. You will. Trouble's going to come. It's unavoidable. But take heart, He said, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. You see, uh, the prosperity gospel that's so popular with people today. It says a Christian, if you're, if you're really living for God and you have enough faith, you should have perfect health, perfect bank account. Things should go perfectly your way. The gospel of Christ says that although as a Christian you live in the same imperfect world as everyone else and you're going to have to walk through a lot of imperfect situations and circumstances throughout your life, the one who is perfect is going to be with you every single step of the way, which means according to Jesus, you can not only have life, but you can have it abundantly even in the midst of your troubles because he will protect you from harm. The prophet Jeremiah, while under great persecution, said, The Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Jeremiah 20, 11. Okay? God promises to be with us and to protect us, but that is going to require you to have a healthy fear of Him. Think about it this way. Why are obedient children obedient toward their parents? Not because that's always the most fun thing to do. No, it's because they have a healthy fear of their parents. They respect and revere their parents. And the result of that is they get to experience their parents' protection and life in abundance. While on the other side, the reason disobedient children are disobedient, at least in the moment, if not ongoing, is because at that moment they don't have a healthy enough fear of their parents. They don't respect and revere their parents as they should. And the result of that is they remove themselves from their parents' protection and in the process can endanger their own lives or at least bring harm to themselves. Anybody remember Evil Knievel? I grew up in the 70s. He was my hero. I'm like, as far as I was concerned, Evil Knievel wasn't afraid of anything. And I wanted to be just like him. And so one day, I was like five or six years old, and I'm standing in the kitchen looking across the living room, and there, there's a coffee table and a couch. And the couch had a wooden frame, these big planks of wood and sharp corners with cushions on top. And I'm thinking, Evil Knievel would jump that coffee table onto that couch. So I run out of the kitchen across the living room, and I jump in the air over the coffee table and successfully land on the couch. Like, that was awesome. I'm going to do it again. And so I'm, I'm doing it over and over again. I'm pretending I'm Evil Knievel. My mother sees me, and she says, Robbie, don't you do that one more time. You're going to get hurt. And she turned away, and I thought to myself, I'm going to do that one more time. And I did. And I came in low. And my face connected with the corner of the couch. 
And that meant a trip to the emergency room. They had to bring in a plastic surgeon and skin grafts from my hips to rebuild this side of my face. It was a mess. Because in that one moment, I didn't have that fear, that respect, a reverence for my parents that I should have had. And so in that moment, I removed myself from under their protection and harm came to me. And it's a lesson I will never forget. It's the same way with God. It's the fear of God that leads to life. In fact, you can write this down. You cannot have a truly abundant life without a healthy fear of God. That's a fact. You, you cannot have a truly abundant life without a healthy fear of God. All right, let's finish the story for today. Verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us saying we're very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you're cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So Joshua confronts the Gibeonites and asks them why they did what they did, to which they expressed their knowledge and fear of the Lord, just as Rahab did. It said almost the same thing, and as a result, they're grafted into God's people just as Rahab was. When Joshua says to them that they're cursed, they are in the sense that they're assigned to serve the Israelites in perpetuity. However, and this is a big however, they're assigned to serve in the house of God, which without question or exception was always a blessing for those given such an honor. Okay, the sacrifices and ritual washings at the sanctuary required a massive amount of wood and water. So Joshua says to the Gibeonites from now on, providing that wood and water, that's your job. Okay, but, but to serve at the altar of God meant that the Gibeonites were no longer rejected by God. On the contrary, they're now being fully assimilated, fully grafted in among the Jews, just as Rahab was, which means they were now recipients of God's grace, just as Rahab was, and just as much as the Israelites were. It's no wonder they responded to Joshua's curse with, hey, bud, whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, go ahead and do it, because they understood that they were becoming fully accepted into Israel's life and worship and receiving a great honor by serving at the altar of the Lord. George Bush, not the president, the 19th century Bible scholar and professor of Hebrew. He's actually distantly related to the president's Bush. But in 1852, referring to this so-called curse of the Gibeonites, he wrote, they were hereby brought into a situation where they would naturally acquire the knowledge of the true God and of his revealed will, were made to dwell in the courts of the Lord's house, were honored with near access to him in the services of the sanctuary, and thus placed in circumstances eminently favorable to their spiritual and eternal interests. You understand the fear of the Lord brings blessing and honor. This assignment 
for the Gibeonites at the altar of God was not a result of a curse. It was the result of a healthy fear that they had for the God of the altar. And so in their humility before Joshua, they gladly accept this new assignment, which was a great blessing and a great honor. King Solomon wrote, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Proverbs 22, 4. Do you know that the Gibeonites indeed became servants at the tabernacle just as Joshua had commanded. They were provided for and protected as a part of the family of God. Gibeon even became a priestly city. The Ark of the Covenant often stayed at Gibeon in the days of David and Solomon. At least one of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite. God spoke to Solomon at Gibeon in 1 Kings 3-4, and the Gibeonites were among those who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem with Nehemiah after the exile. Now what part of that sounds like a curse? Now, this is a beautiful picture of what happens to men and women when regardless of our background, regardless of our upbringing, regardless of our associations, regardless of our mistakes, regardless of our sin, regardless of our past, when we throw ourselves down at the foot of the cross in humble repentance and reverent, awestruck fear in an instant, His grace floods our lives and He says to us, you're no longer a stranger to me, you're my child and from now on I will fill your life with blessing and honor as you serve me all the days of your life. This, this is what the world needs more of today. Followers of Christ who understand that we cannot love God like we should if we do not fear God like we should. Because it's only when we're utterly seized by an awestruck wonder in the presence of Jesus Christ that we no longer fear anything else and we begin to love him more than everything else. This is when he becomes the focus of all our attention. It's when he becomes the source of all our joy. It's when he's at the center of every decision. It's when he's the purpose behind all that we do. That's when he's the motivation that gets us up in the morning and the drive that keeps us going throughout each day. That is when he becomes the sum total of everything we long for in this life as we become utterly consumed by him. That is what it means for the follower of Christ to fear God. We revere him so much that everything else in our lives pales in his presence. And what follows is wisdom and life and blessing and honor when we truly learn what it means to fear God. Let's pray.